Hi everyone, welcome to PodX, our School of Design and Architecture's podcast, aimed at helping upcoming graduates navigate the early years of their design careers by giving them the opportunity to hear from designers in practice. My name is Dr. Shivani Tiagi and I'm the Director of the Bureau, which is the school's student-led design consultancy who produce PodX. I'm also a lecturer in communication design here at Swinburne. I would like to begin this episode by respectfully acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which Swinburne's Australian campuses are located, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. In this episode, we'll be discussing designing, making and collaboration, in particular, a recent collaborative project and exhibition called Relatively Useful, which was held at Heidi Museum of Modern Art as part of Melbourne Design Week. Joining us today are the exhibition's creators, Simon Lloyd and John Wardle. Simon is a researcher and educator in exhibition design, sustainable design and design communication at Swinburne. John is an award-winning architect and senior partner at John Wardle Architects. John and his practice have designed beautiful residential, commercial and educational spaces right across the country, from urban design and master planning to architecture and interior design. Also joining us is Cherry Gorman, Cherry is a recent graduate from Swinburne's Bachelor of Design Interior Architecture program. Cherry is currently in her first graduate role as a design assistant for Hartley, a studio focused on residential design. If you'd like to see any of the work we'll be discussing in this episode, please follow the link to the Swinburne Design Instagram posted in the episode description. So let's get started. Firstly, thank you to Simon, John and Cherry for joining us today. I'd like to begin by discussing your process of designing and making with the concept of translating ideas into forms. Simon and John, in your experience, what opportunities and challenges arise when you take a design then translate it into a physical product? I guess this is a really tricky one to start with, isn't it? How this, this kind of imagining becomes a reality. Um, and I think it's, um, it's quite a complex question in a way. Um, so whether it's trial and error, or whether at, at some point uh, there is there's this kind of collaborative element that um, people have experienced in terms of making um, actually can, can guide the process through in some sort of way. Um, and, and certainly um, with the with the show at Heidi, um, uh, I, I think um, there's been a lot of uh, these collaborative processes kind of taking shape. And it's also, um, there are these intermediate processes where the, the, the imagining, the drawing, I guess the modeling um, sort of helps to, to, to kind of take that into some sort of um, critical form at the end. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good point, the idea of imagining or our imagination. We, we start off with a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen and the way we do imagine something that first moment of the thought process and that sort of coordination in some form between hand, eye, and and uh, brain to start to realise something in, in some kind of conceptual or, or sketch form. I always think the interesting thing is scale. I um, invented a word uh, some years ago when I was doing my masters of scalelessness because when we draw an idea, it has no scale, whether it's on a computer screen, and for us it could be a house or a large building or a dining table or on a piece of paper, it's actually without scale. The, the one thing that the construction or the fabrication process does is render scale. So for me, one of the pitfalls, and, and I often have to claim this, is, is often um, 
the surprise in the scale of something. I, you know, I might have developed the idea and worked up through sketches and sketches when it's realised. You think, oh my God, it's, it's bigger than I expected or it's proportionally different or whatever. So that idea of scale comes into that equation somewhere beyond that rendering of your imagination. And that's sort of dropping into context, isn't it? That, that, that sudden realisation that it's, whoa, or it's, it's too big or too small. It just doesn't quite kind of fit in there somehow, yeah. The, the other thought I had there was also about those things that impinge on your subconscious as well. I mean, I've often had the case of designing something and then you, you look around the house and you say, there it is. <laughs> That's where it came from. It's nothing to do with my, my imagining. It sort of snuck in somehow, you know. So there's that, there's that sort of uh, el element to, of surprise almost when these things happen. And there's a, it's probably one of the areas where Simon and I differ as an architect where we generally deal with the large scale. Sometimes I will recognise an object, a small object, and you, you, something that could be a household object or a product something can actually be seen as a marquette for something much larger you could imagine you could see an Alvar Alto vase and build a block of apartments out of it you know it, it's it's that that it is that interesting thing about those sort of cues that we get from the world around us and sometimes imagination can be can be drawn from the purely abstract and that's really interesting and sort of often you're going into uncharted territory while other times it can be sort of referential and, and respond to our circumstances and environment. And there are kind of no rules to these things. And sometimes you have to be aware of what that source is. And is, some, is it something that is purely a fleet of the imagination or is it something that you, to record the process of making, you must actually go backwards and actually record or sort of really develop ideas on how the ideas were how things were originated in those first conceptual moments. Mm. I think about the idea that you talked about that kind of uh, kind of fluid state, John. I, I wondered about taking a piece of music and actually designing something from that, so that the two, the, you know, the, the the tonal elements don't relate to the physical, but but they suggest things in some way. Mm. Um, it's interesting because as an architect, I've one thing I just can't. I'm not a particularly musical person. Um, I like the idea that we create volumes that respond acoustically well. We just completed a few years ago a conservatorium and all the acoustic performance of that was really key. But I just don't understand how musicians, composers think. I, I, I don't get the language, how they, how they can actually annotate the form of sound. It's to me, it's just a world apart from... The physicality of what I do, and I, I, I really revere probably all of the other creative avenues, musicians, and how they can actually um, imagine sound that doesn't otherwise exist. It's a, it's a, it, it, it's a complete. Um, it's just an area that I have no. You know, you think often as designers, we can merge into other territories. I feel I, as an architect, I can kind of understand a bit about ceramics and see how a ceramicist works and through people like Simon I've got a broader knowledge in many other aspects of making but I just put musical composers out there completely on their own. Maybe if you took the volumes in some of your buildings and actually could could play them in terms of each volume you wonder whether there'll be a a harmonious tone at the end, <laughs> how, that, how that might work, like play like a panpipe, you know. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> possibly, yeah.
I think Simon and, and John, you've made a really interesting point about the idea of imagination and taking an idea and then realizing it. And so in your own practice, how do you kind of generate ideas? And then also, John, you mentioned the ideas are sort of um, being in awe of composers and musicians taking kind of uh, ideas about sound and then creating them. And that's, I think, for a lot of people in at design, creating the physical um, design, whether that's a space or an object that has a similar, there's a similar relationship to that because it is about um, taking that one idea and then realising it into the physical form. Are there any strategies that either of you use to do that? Um, our architects are totally bound up in the physical world and we sometimes must have to pull ourselves away and think of the other the other senses and, and that acuity that we have to the oral sensibility and things and it, it's, it's really important um, for us to do that. Um, I, I think, uh, and also the, the aspects of emotion, you know, we can create spaces that are moody or have a sense of release or comp compression. I mean, architecture can, can do that. I often like the idea of injecting, uh, and something that's really difficult is actually injecting humour into a physical object. I mean, it sounds really hard to do, but I mean, even the title of Simon and my exhibition, Relatively Useful, was meant to be humorous. Um, it did describe the kind of thinking behind things that they weren't absolutely useful. It wasn't a Bauhaus show, as I've described it a few times now. It's, there's the sort of a, there's the theatricality of daily life that was explored as much as the purpose of a coffee table or a dining table or a, or a jug. So that's really hard to do. And um, it's like uh, there are pitfalls in doing that. But I think there's certainly a few pieces there that I intended. There's one piece in that show called A Series of Near Misses that I laughed when I drew it up. I mean, it made it me, um, I had my own response to it. It was the idea of incompetence because if I had to make something, I kept missing the spot where the tabletop would meet the legs. Um, and then when I saw it for the first time, I laughed. I mean, and that's a great thing to be able to do. We often treat that as um, maybe a bit lightweight or less important, but gosh, if you can do something that causes that instinctive human emotion of joy and and laughter, that's a pretty good aim. That's a great thought. And it, it's, it's really, as you say, it, it's incredibly difficult to do. I, I wonder sometimes, if we're a bit serious, so so the idea of inserting humour in these things is, is terrific, and it's also about the the life of the object. I'm sure well, I've certainly done it, where you've tried to to make something and you've 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 drilled through the table as well. <clears throat> you know, you've really you've really kind of stuffed it up in, in a big way, but that's also part of the journey somehow. It's 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 a, it's a funny one. I was also thinking in terms of your work, John and, and Cherry, the work you're doing as well, um, that you have a you know, you, you you have a very particular brief. It's about a particular structure and interior. Whereas maybe in terms of my work, I, I can be a little bit more free form. I, I've got that, not quite a luxury, but it, it enables me to, to to think about something more longer term or to, to kind of riff on it a little bit without having to um, address the client and say, well, you wanted a chair, but hey, here's a vase, you know, and how, how that works. <laughs> 
Yes. That's a, that's a great point, Simon. And I suppose, Chair, let's go to you because you're a recent graduate. In terms yes. of the point that Simon made about coming up with ideas in order to translate them into a, into a space or a product, um, when you're addressing a client's brief, what is your approach or what have you learned so far? My studio is very, um, I guess, client driven so they're brought to the table quite a lot and establishing that brief in the beginning is um, really important they've they've come to us with a brief that they want you know this kind of room or this kind of space this many bathrooms things like that and you've kind of it's almost a series of like ticking boxes but then in 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 a product you've got a little bit more flexibility as you say Simon Um, but I think finding the moments in that process you know the smaller details and things like that you've you've got that brief where you need that sort of um, you need to check off those boxes on what's important but then the smaller details are really what kind of make that space for the client and make it special and make like uh, encourage them to kind of keep engaging you and keep the service again Mm. sort of thing Yeah. I think it's absolutely about those details, isn't it, Cherry? That's right. So you know, the sense of being able yeah. to, to bore into things further and further and further and the details still c- keep coming up. I was thinking, John, excuse <clears throat> me, of your, of your half clover cutout at the end of that table. It's like a, a bite out at the end of the table there. And so there's just this little moment which, 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 which kind of shifts things a bit. And I suppose, you know, I'm guessing... Uh, you know, the, the client wants you to make something that's functional, but they also expect a bit of you in there as well, a bit extra, a, a bit of a surprise possibly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they should if, if they're commissioning an architect. I often say that if I'm talking to, particularly to a, a residential architect, somebody who's come to us for a house in one of the early meetings, I'll say, the one thing we don't want here is at the end of the job, you say, hmm, thank you very much. It's just as I'd imagined. <laughs> to me, that's a big, big fail. And, I can go back years ago to the first repeat client we had. This is a very old story, but first repeat client, we did a city house for them and they bought a block of land on the coastal edge, a magnificent block of land. And I think they felt that they were flattering us and and supporting us by saying, we just love everything you did in the city. So we just please, just the, the way it all works, just do that again for us down here on the coast. And I immediately said, hmm, well, I think that'd be a very poor strategy. I think this house should be exactly the opposite. If you've driven down late on a Friday night, exhausted from work, you want to wake up the next morning, you want to trip over the corner of the bed because it's in a different position and go into the kitchen and be confounded by it and have to kind of recalibrate <laughs> around a completely different organisational setting for your life. And um, so and I think some of our great successes where I've I've discussed described as creative disobedience. We, I know you want this, but what do you think of this? And um, and we actually go back and challenge the client. Um, and some of our great successes are when we've actually invented an aspect of the brief that just wasn't there in their minds. Thanks, John. That's great. So we've touched about clients and their expectations and how do we meet those, but also, I suppose, add an element of our own creativity into, into the project. In terms of relatively useful, which was your exhibition recently, Heidi, Simon and John, um, you designed a lot of the objects and then had them made by craftsmen and makers. What was that process and what were some of the challenges in realising your ideas into the physical forms of the objects? Um, 
<clears throat> I mean, that, that was, a, I, I think, really, for me, a kind of profound uh, kind of moment. I mean, I just finished a PhD that looked at some of this, the notion of designer and maker. Uh, and, and I really think, and I really believe that, that the maker <clears throat> forms part of the design process in some way, they they have to carry out this very difficult task of realizing forms. I know John worked with many more um, makers than I did on this one. I, I worked with about four. I think I think John carried up the extra nineteen or twenty, was it, John? I think so. This John, John's experience would be um, much more expansive than I will. But I I, I really um, I think this this idea of um, and I think one one of the beautiful works that John did, one of the cabinets actually went to the maker, uh, Simeon Ducks, with, with a few uh, a, a few thoughts still required there. And I, I really think it's fantastic that, that, that between John and Simeon, the, the resolution was, was, was kind of made in real time. I think that was, uh, I know how you yeah. felt about that, John, but that, that's a beautiful, yeah. the details are just exquisite. And I, I think that process came out of that conversation. Yeah, because I'm, I'm unlike Simon, I'm not a tall, um, I'm not a maker. I'm not, in fact, I'm technically broadly incompetent, which is why I employ other people with very good skills in my practice. And I've managed to skate through life uh, being fascinated by the work of others without actually having to know too much about it. And, um, and so I drew up that cabinet called Hand Operated. So the idea it it sort of explored the way we use the dexterity of the hand and how we might uh, touch and, and experience an object and our hands are our kind of sensory armatures. They, they sort of, we, we, we understand it through the feeling and we get through operating it through the hand. So that was kind of its broad idea. Drew it up, a couple of details and off it went. Um, Simeon was, had this wonderful inquiring mind and a fastidiousness that, he didn't want to take it away and, and, and adapt. He wanted to accord with my thinking. And some of it, as Simon's just mentioned, was thinking I hadn't yet done. So he was, more of all of the things that were made, I think it's a good example, Simon. Simeon was the person who was back to me for constantly, like, how would you like me to go about this? And if this is hinged in this manner, how do we conceal the hinge? Or what, what do I do here or whatever? So. I then I, I did I think probably more detailed drawings after the commissioning than I did before, which is um, a great luxury, and it's a much better unit. Um, even though it, it sounds like Simeon only made it, it was actually his inquiring mind that kind of forced further thinking that made it a much much richer unit than it was first conceived. Yeah, through that. Yeah, that process of of um, coming back and forth and inquiring of something that then demanded further thinking. I think that's a really interesting point, John, because it brings up that concept of uh, thinking through design, through the making, actually informs the the process and also the final outcome as well. It's not so much just coming up with the idea and then having it made. It's mm. it's quite a in depth long mm. process. Certainly, yeah. I think with um with uh, working with John Cherry on the stool, uh, it was interesting. Uh, I, I had the initial concept, but working with John, who is also very much into technology and um, CNC production, the digital, 
So it, it was really uh, eye-opening for me that, uh, again, I, I design from what I know. So in terms of my carpentry skills, they're, they're, they're somewhat kind of traditional, but suddenly when you introduce the whole CNC thing, it, 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 it opens up another world. It, it, it releases the design possibilities in an extraordinary way. Um, and it's something I've always kind of resisted, but but I realise now that I can't resist it any longer. I've got to go with it. Um, I, I've got to be able to um, to, to kind of realise what might be possible in that way. But it's but but that you know um, John Cho's knowledge really advanced the whole kind of concept in, in, in an extraordinary way. And I think um, you you can tell. I think I, I quoted um, a table by Tobias Scarpa, Carlos Scarpa's uh, son. You can tell it's been designed for the CNC. It's such a radical change, and I think that's that's very exciting. I remember your classes, and you're obviously like a very tactile kind of person, and I really appreciated that. Having done uni now, and um, you know everything's very computer based, I found that like amazing to get ideas out on the paper and kind of. Uh, see straight away what they would look like but I think the initial kind of um, physical you know just realizing physically what a form can look like and when you can touch it and uh, develop it further in that way is something that I really admired from taking your classes so I yeah I think that there's definitely benefits in 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 both um directions well I, I think working <laughs> yeah. through through um well thinking through modeling and I, th I think with the, the systems viruses mm -hmm. that john and i worked on you know john sent me the drawing yes. uh, and then I, I i said oh yes we can do this and then i think john you sent me two more drawings the next day <laughs> and so 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 that conversation and, and again it was great to i think i'd made a, a foam model and we we had many discussions uh, face to face and on email, but then John was drawing on the on the three dimensional model as well. So, so going from flat <clears throat> paper to drawing and adapting the the actual four, three dimensional form was was fantastic. You know, and I suppose we do that on the computer screen, but to do it in reality, um, I often think with automotive design, it's they still very much seem to be designed in elevations and plans. And what happens in the corner, you go, whoa, how did that happen? You know, and so to have that three-dimensional <laughs> form there to relate to is so important. Yeah. Mm. I think I often think I'm liberated by not being burdened by knowing too much. I mean, when I did send that drawing to Simon, I did that. I had I don't think I even knew much about the the slip casting. Pro I, I think I knew nothing about the slip casting process other than broadly would have had to be slip casted and. Uh, the learning process for me personally through that process of Simon making it. And I should talk for a moment here about Simon. We, that is so complex, that sequence of vases, that we sent it off to two other makers, um, very reputable ceramicists that just couldn't make it. Yeah. And uh, so the only two in existence that actually are perfect, uh, Simon somehow worked out the way with firing times and everything else uh, to actually make these two beautiful forms in, in just in perfect rendition. Yeah, mm. Quite wonderful. And so, yeah, I, I, I still just enjoy that coming from a fairly low base of going to somewhere new that I don't 
understand a new technology or a new material or system or something and learning on the run. And very often it's actually learning through designing something through almost complete lack of knowledge and then picking it up through through the work of somebody who can then implement um, uh, the process of making through their own vast knowledge and research. And I really enjoy that process, John, and I've really grown to love these forms, I must say. But, but there's something about the, you know, they, they do challenge the process, but the way they interlock. And, it, and again, it, it goes, you know, it, it breaks the mould, literally, in that you're shifting the, the forms and the possibilities. So you, you really have to try and kind of work with that. And I think that's the really exciting thing, that there's potential. And if you look at some other historic designs, that they are you think where did that come from it's so different it's so unusual so so the, the idea of, of, of john's an architect's mind coming into this form and, and the scale as well the scalelessness of it you know is it a, is it a building it, it, you know is, is it a vase you know, what is it or what could it be you know i, I i'm guilty absolutely of pinching um the form of some of Le Corbusier's vents on the top of his um, buildings and turn them into vases because I think they were wasted as vents on the rooftops. Um, but but you know the the, the the shifting of the scale. This this little thing could be something different. It could it could change. And, and the other thing I think is interesting working with materials. You know if you were if if the world were full of uh, metal rods or or, or 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 certain materials that you had to work with. You know, you, you have to adapt to that material. I think that that also reveals and can 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 produce really interesting challenges and outcomes as well. Thanks, Simon and and Cherry and John. I think this sort of um, kind of demonstrates your different thought processes and styles, as well as collaboration and how you work together to realise a design, as well as kind of complementing each other's design process. And I guess that brings us to our final question. John, you've described your process as rapid fire, as whereas Simon, uh, you refer to your process as sitting with it. So how, you've spoken a little bit of how you collaborated um, on relatively useful objects, which I visited the exhibition. It was very beautiful work. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that collaboration and how you sort of went through taking the ideas, discussing them, then, of course, um, working with the makers to develop them further. And also in terms of, you know, uh, student designers and graduate designers who are sort of just entering the industry, what are some of the things that, you know, they should think about or opportunities that, um, you know, that might arise from this process about collaborating with other creative people, whether that be another designer or a maker? And Cherry, of course, you're welcome to join the conversation too. Oh, I think we're both part of professions of the, the hero designer, certainly in architecture, that solitary single figure throughout history that um, uh, appears to um, conceive and develop an idea and render it physical all on their own. And it's a sort of a heroic um, impression of a generally um, powerful figure. Um, I always felt that in my practice, which does, well, it does have my name on the door, um, almost from day one, um, it's has been much more a framework for collaboration. I've always been very aware of the things that I can't do. Um, I often celebrate them. I often playfully talk about the things that I just um, 
can't do on my own. And I, I've always had a much more shared platform. I mean, sometimes, and particularly some of the smaller projects, I've done much more on my own. But generally, I've shared the design, the creative process with others. And I think that hero designer, the, the, the um, iconic architectural figure, um, is still, really, unfortunately, still very pronounced internationally at the moment. Um, but I think there's a new generation, uh, the generation after mine, that is much more about establishing practices on a collaborative framework. Most new practices aren't like the ones uh, formed in my generation. They're much more of a shared authorship uh, and and, and actually a designed framework of collaboration. Um, so we, we, I've sort of done it instinctively and I think I've gathered you know, very bright minds around and assembled them within my practice. Um, uh, in some ways, that's more unusual, I think, for, for my generation, but now much more commonplace with practices that come. They wouldn't even name it after the one person. It would be the name of the practice might even be something that is engaging with either a place or a process or something. And it's this really energetic shared platform because it's it's pretty rare other than absolute genius that an idea isn't improved by working it through with others. And I've just, in a very practical sense, feel that the ideas are richer or better developed or more likely to curve away from a central strategy through conversation with others. And probably my final point on that, I often describe Simon draws impeccably. The best drawer I know, just this wonderful sense of craftsmanship and ability to draw. My drawings have, if you look at them, are these ratty, quick, hasty things. But very often, and some of them I can look right back, drawings I've kept for years, that are actually drawn through the act of conversation. So my drawings are very conversational to spark an idea, or literally might be drawing on a table with others, and I'll draw as I talk. Um, and so the nature of the way I draw is generally a suggestive of a collaborative process. Um, just touching on, I think that that um, conversations with people goes back to your exhibition with Simon where you're talking about um, your, your naivety about certain materials and certain things and kind of embracing that na like naivety to make your designs better by learning about other things and um, really building on the expertise of others as well. I think it shows in, like, I'm a big fan of your work and it shows in your in, in your buildings, in your interiors. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, the collaboration side of it that, you, that you've essentially talked about throughout the, the processes of your exhibition really translates through to those sorts of bigger spaces, spaces with scale, which I'm excited to like see as my career mm. oh, grows, like getting that off the paper. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I was a kind of a solitary um, design and maker for many years um, uh, until I realised the error in my ways and that, that the things I was designing were probably fine, uh, but the things I was making uh, to realise my designs were actually lacking probably often severely lacking in many ways. So so that um, a little bit like the, um, the liberation of the digital in some respects, um, actually getting people to help and to collaborate with was, was really a revelation to me that 
that, that, that these things could be um, made far better than I can ever make them, but also the, 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 the shifts and the changes that take place to that conversation as well were, were, were fantastic. You know, the, uh, working um, with the, the, the picture um, there, um, you know, I, I'd pass over the, the model to, um, to the maker and it was a very difficult and complex thing to do. And he would come back having made it as if it was, you know, easy. But I'm sure it wasn't. He he really struggled with it, but he, he did it, and it was just just fantastic, you know. And, and the other just slight point there, I think, is about you, you know the, the the makers revel in the materiality and the material, and often there is in the design sense a way of just. Pulling, pulling that back as well. So I think it works both ways in some way that the design does pull it back. And I think, Michelle, what you talk about, a, a certain naivety as well. I, I think there can be uh, a kind of a fragility, a naivety in a work as well, which is uh, often goes too far, becomes too solid, too pronounced. And in fact, that, that moment of, uh, of, of conception and making that, that allows that, that quality to exist is fantastic as well. If that if that's kind of a shared outcome in some way. Thanks for that. I think um, in the spirit of collaboration, thank you for participating in PodX and sharing your insights about the making and designing process. It was really interesting to hear from you all. And I know I said final question last time, but I would like to end with a final question, uh, particularly to John and Simon. Could you just briefly tell us about your favourite piece at Relatively Useful and why that was your favourite piece? I always struggle with that because um, uh, it would it was a th throughout the making of it I would change utterly and often it was a, due to the relationship with the makers I'd go and visit all of these people in, in their particular circumstances I, I had a as it was progressing I had a loop around mainly the north of Melbourne uh, and visited I'd have an amazing morning visiting all of them in one great loop. Um, uh, and it would change throughout the course of it. And, and, and as I went back and forth to the show, which I did many times, um, I would change my view to, so to get to one, um, I, I think it would ha have, well, the, the thing that unites us both is the Systems Bars project. And that, that really was the genesis of the whole show. Had, had we not come together on the Systems Bars, I don't think the show, we would have gone further and, and done the show itself. So if I could put that to one side, because I think that was, the important piece of the show, and and and, it, and it, it's there because it was sort of this equal value of, of Simon and I creatively in the making of it. Um, but if I had to get down to a piece of my own alone, it probably is this um, is the hand operated cabinet because of just um, the intensity of your work, the, the learning processes for me. Uh, one thing I didn't mention with Simeon Ducks is we gave him a whole pile of timber, hydrogen timber, solid timber. And he veneered it all. And I remember when he told me, told me he was going to do it, I thought, oh, for God's sake, isn't that like turning into Ikea or something? Why would you do that? And no, 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 I got a lesson in the traditions of timber, timber artisanship. You, you can't trust solid timber not to move and everything with the atmosphere. And no, so he diligently veneered it and then reapplied it to a solid board, but embedding the matching end grain in all of the edge conditions of those boards. I mean, the most fastidious piece of work I've ever seen. So um, I think because of just the sheer intensity and the, the, the things that I got out of it, that would probably be it. Uh, and I, I, 
I, I agree that it's a fantastic bit, and, and it, it, it has really these beautiful architectural qualities. You know, the, the detailing is great. I, I think for me, uh, again, aside from the uh, the systems vase, what was fantastic is that I there were two pieces. I think the the red oxide table and probably the brick table that I almost didn't make. <laughs> I was almost challenged to oh, go on. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at it, and they actually they they came out really well. But 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 one piece that surprised me, John did a. Uh, a drawing of a comfy chair, uh, this this kind of profile drawing, and then he sent me another one of a small chair with with a button seat. And I thought, oh, this is this is a really kind of quirky little chair. And I think it appeared it appeared in reality the next week. And it was it suddenly arrived. Um, so it, it it was this very characterful. I was thinking of those. Um, like a yellow green bird that just suddenly arrived there so and it was quite different to many others but I think that was a that was a delight that this thing manifested itself at such short notice yeah I'm the I'm the master of the last minute which is the frustration <laughs> to anybody who ever has to work with me <laughs> but it was a pleasure and and Honestly, you could. We're such good friends. We've known each other for so many years, and but we apply ourselves entirely differently to things. And the fact that we did this all-encompassing show in a fairly rapid-fire time period um, with such good grace and so many great conversations um, made it such a, an immensely rewarding experience. Yeah, it, was a great, it was a fantastic process. Yeah, it's great. Thank you, Simon, John and Cherry for taking the time to join us today. In the description, you can find links to images of the work shown at Simon and John's exhibition, Relatively Useful, as well as other projects we discussed today. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another episode soon.